If you would take your Bible and open to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. By Bible, if you're new to church, Bible is shorthand for the 66 books of the Bible that God has given us through inspiration over the course of human history to help us to know not only who he is, but what he is like and how he has acted and will continue to act to save people from sin. All that is contained in this book. So we eagerly open it every week to find more more about God and what he has done and how that is highly relevant to us. So if you don't have a copy of this book, there are some around you, those blue books. Please take one of those home as a gift because there, we can think of no better Christmas gift to give you than the communication that has come from the one who has made us and sent his son to save us. We have been studying through one book of those many books. Uh, one, chat, one book of the Bible called Acts recently. So we're turning back to that book as we make our way through it near to the end. Acts chapter 27. And if you're looking at that blue Bible, you'll find this printed on page 936. 936. As we get to the end of Acts, if you wanted to flip all the way back to Acts 1, you don't have to. But I just want to show you that uh, in Acts 1.8, we actually have a thesis, I think, of this entire book. The way it's going to go is laid out right at the beginning when Jesus tells his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Acts 1a. And the whole book has followed that arc. Peter and James headed up the first part of that mission in the first half of Acts, mainly in Jerusalem, Judea. And we've been following Paul in the second half, taking the message of Jesus to the end of the earth, even to Rome as he lands this morning. We know that Paul is Rome-bound even before he gets there because Jesus appeared to him in Acts 23.11 and told him that's where Paul was being sent. Chapters 23 to 26 that we've been in most recently have covered a multifaceted trial. And having appealed to Caesar, Paul uh, makes his case before Governor Felix... And then Festus, and Festus in chapter 25, verse 11 to 12, agrees finally to send Paul to have his trial heard by none other than Caesar and his imperial court. So all that is really left for Paul to do now is make the journey to Rome, which he does in our passage this morning in Acts 27, 1 to Acts 28, verse 16. Now, this will not be a smooth journey, but Paul will get there safely despite storms, shipwrecks, and snake bites. Yes, even snake bites. So my sermon is going to be organized under those under these four main headings as we follow the narrative storms, shipwreck. Snake bites and safety. Storms, shipwreck, 
snake bites and safety. We begin reading in chapter 27, 1 through 20, and follow Paul into the storms. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. A lee is kind of like a, a kind of a cliff or a, a, a shadow or shade that would be created by a, a, a landmass, so that as you came around, the wind would be blocked. So that's what a lee is. We sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us, verse 5. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found his ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, which near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And you know it's bad when the professional sailors have given up hope. Luke's account mentions over and over how hard the sea voyage was. Winds against, sailing slowly, with difficulty, dangerous, driven along, violently storm-tossed, no respite, not even under the cover of coastal cliffs. You know, sometimes when we're coming to God's word and we might have trouble understanding its significance for us, we are helped 
at times to look to other parts of God's word to help us understand what's going on. For example, here is a hard-going sea voyage. And we remember Jonah, a prophet called by God to take God's message of salvation through repentance to Nineveh. Instead of obediently going the right way, which in his case was to the east, Jonah goes the opposite direction toward Tarshish or modern-day Spain. God interrupts the ship and the trip and sends a storm. All the cargo gets bailed. The Gentile sailors in charge of the ship, not Jonah, are the ones that identify the problem. And God is seemingly judging Jonah for his decision. And Jonah has risked everyone else's life in his sin. Jonah, in the end, is given to the sea to save the life of the rest of the crew. And a big fish miraculously comes and saves Jonah. And at the end of the story, ultimately, Nineveh hears God's message from Jonah. And they're saved. Paul is the anti-Jonah story. Paul is the faithful prophet. Paul is not running from God. He is going where God sent him. He is sent with God's word of repentance and faith to the Gentiles, not in the east now, but in the west. In fact, Paul intends to obediently go to where Jonah rebelliously ran, to Spain. You can read about that in Romans 15. Perhaps as a judgment against the sailors and soldiers for holding and transporting his messenger, God sends these winds... In desperation, they too bail the cargo. But Paul, instead of sacrificing himself, he speaks for God. He stays. And because he does, everyone else will get saved. Paul, through this angle of Jonah, another part of God's word, we see the word of God helping to interpret itself. In Christ, the faithful people of God, seen through Jonah and Paul in the contrast. In Christ, the faithful people of God bring the saving word of God to those chosen by God to receive salvation. The message becomes clearer. Now, had the soldiers and sailors listened to God's messenger right away, in chapter 27, verse 10, when Paul warns them, they would have been spared this harrowing experience, we think. So at times, as we seek to warn and do warn and care for others and love them, we are going to watch friends, brothers, sisters, kids still make bad choices that lead to their suffering. As Christ has been to us when we sinned, be compassionate toward these, not critical. Remember how hard life is without access to the wisdom that comes from God. How helpless we are when we feel ourselves to be like the little boat, violently thrown around a gigantic sea of this life and world and trial, when all we have is a tattered sail of our strength and a tiny rudder 
of our reason to guide us. Be compassionate. Do not try to control. Now, in our love for others, sometimes we want to try to take the choice out of their own hands. Notice that Paul warns, but does not coerce. Warn in love. Do not control. And even as we warn, we continue with Christ's compassion to love. We all at times will make decisions just according to our own reasoning and our own desires. And that will be absent or ignorant of what God wants for us. We do that constantly. And I think that's partly how God helps us understand ultimately that we are accountable to him in the way we choose to live. In our efforts to control our own lives by our own understanding, God will use that to reveal himself. And the way he'll often do it is he'll overrule our attempts at control with his better power applied in our life for other ends. In this, God teaches us that we cannot overcome what is against us. And so he is not going to leave us at the so-called liberty to try. Because that would be to our demise. We cannot, any of us, run from the calling that we were given at birth to worship God above all else. Jonah attempted it, and we saw how far that got him. We cannot blast through storms like the crew of Paul's ship was trying to do. We must stop striving and surrender our plans to the Lord's direction. That, and that will ultimately take us the opposite way we were trying to go otherwise. Until we do, Paul's warning will ring true for us. Your life will, without surrendering to Christ, become one successive string of hopeless hardships, agonizing losses, and finally death without rescue. So do you see how in love God, with his power, drives us to hopelessness and despair through his chosen stormy agents of trial? Until we see we're without hope and without God in the world, we are lost. Until it would seem like it must have seemed to Jonah or those sailors that the end of the story will be judgment for our rebellion against the God who made us and the storms that drowned us. And still we get there. Until we get there, what real hope do we have of seeing God over it all? But God does see beyond the waves. He wears down our resistance until we're ready to repent of our pride. And there God reveals salvation to us. Until the end of life in ourself becomes the beginning of life in Christ. So when all seems lost. That is when we will see God save. As he does in this story. Our second section, having seen storms, we now move to shipwreck. Shipwreck, chapter 27, verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take 
depart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. What a great contrast there between... 2720, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And then the end of 27, and so it was that all were brought safely to land. If you remember, Jesus appeared to his disciples once on a stormy sea in Matthew 14, 27. And he told them then not to be afraid. And now Jesus sends his angel to tell Paul to deliver a similar message. Through Paul, the passengers on this boat will hear the same words Jesus spoke to his 12 followers. Take heart, do not be afraid. So apparently, Jesus' present protection is a comfort available for all his people. Not just for those first ones who followed him. Paul, unlike Jesus, is not able to, in this storm, speak a word of command over the waves. But that doesn't make his words in chapter 27, verse 25, any less effective. Take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. The power here is not in Paul's work. The power is in God's word. Paul knows this. 
And by his belief and trust, the Lord is going to save all these people. There's so many echoes of scripture reverberating through this passage. Jonah, Jesus, and now Abraham and echoes of him is showing up here. Abraham was a man God appeared to in the night and told him he was going to be sent by God to a foreign nation. And through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now Paul, believing, going by faith, becomes a blessing. A blessing unto the salvation for all the people on this boat. Sailors, soldiers, prisoners, Gentiles, and then beyond this, to those he'll meet in Rome. So church, remember, our path behind Jesus is not an individualistic one. It is not for our sake only. It is for those God will bless through us. As members of this church, we are covenant We are committed in covenant love to love others, serve them, give the gospel to them, give out the gospel as much as we can in an effort and design by Christ to bless others. As in Abraham and in Paul, we come into this life not of our own accord, not by work of our own salvation. These sailors and soldiers and prisoners were saved because of their attachment to Paul. Our eternal salvation comes because of our attachment to Christ. And because of our unity with him in his death, we will come out of death with him into resurrection life. Like those on the ship, it is your connection to God's man and God's son. That will mean that you are not consumed. So what are we to believe when around us or in our lives all seems lost? Well, we are to believe that the weight that would have drowned us was laid on Christ. We are to take hope and courage that if we have faith in him, we have been crucified with him. And it is no longer us who live. It is Christ who lives in us. And the life that we now live as Christians in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. When we follow Jesus, everything else we used to mistakenly consider as life, we now consider loss. That's what Paul writes in other of his letters. Notice that the only thing these people walk away with in this story is their life. Everything else has been lost under the waves. They reach the shore floating on scraps. To surrender all on Christ is to abandon trust in all other means of rescue. The sailors tried to sneak away in a lifeboat in verse 31, but Paul says there's no shortcuts. To be saved, they'd have to stay with Paul. They'd have to find salvation through their attachment to God's man. We will not gain heaven by sailing skillfully on our own, but by God at some point in our life making shipwreck of all other competing trusts. This is how we reach heaven. 
dashed on the rock, clinging only to Christ. Falling asleep eventually under the last great wave, then waking up on heaven's golden shore alive in Christ. What amazing grace in Christ. We pass through the waters, but we do not drown. We walk through the fire, but we're not consumed because we come through Christ. Church, there are many around us trying out various trusts. Looking for some way to escape, looking for some shortcut around death, looking for the place that will get them through. From our fixed place on the rock of our salvation, we look for them. We call out to them, come to Christ, the only trust that will remain. Perhaps you're here this morning and you know that if you were in this boat, you would be despairing for life. You know that if your ship and your life went down today and you had to answer for all your sin before a holy God, you would surely be lost. Maybe you feel like you're drowning in your sin already. You've already tried to sail on your own and it's gotten you nowhere. Like the crew with Paul, you need to listen to the one who tells you that you can be delivered. You can. God says, I sent my son to die for you and to rise for victory over your death. All that is needed is to turn to him to be saved. Like he did with Peter. Jesus will walk out to you in whatever storm you're in and tell you simply look to him for salvation. Listen to what he is telling you. Trust only in him. And when Christ lays hold of you, you will lay hold of life. Because of God working through his man to bring salvation, no one on the boat died that day. And because of the peace of God that resonated through Paul's message, a fight to survive turns into, weirdly, a feast on the boat. I often find that when life gets overwhelming... I think the first thing I skip is feeding by faith on Jesus. Christians, so often, so often we will have no choice but to break bread in communion with God when the winds of life are howling around. Do not wait for stillness outside to engage in the communion you have offered in Jesus. We will need to find our sleep in the hold next to Jesus while the waves roll. If we wait for the world to get quiet before we quiet our hearts in Jesus, we will never find a moment of peace. Where do we find that kind of peace? Where do we find the kind of peace that we can enjoy even in the storm? How do anxious hearts become still hearts? I believe in Jesus. If you are in him, he has promised you will have what you need. Just like these sailors had food in the middle of a storm. He will give you today's bread. He will make sure that you will one day be delivered. 
He has already faced death himself to ensure that you will walk through in life. Salvation through shipwreck. Through shipwreck. I wonder what it felt like to have labored and despaired of life for weeks on the sea, running up against a reef, bracing for the chilling water, then making it to land with just yourself. Everything else lost. I doubt any passenger on the ship that day would have traded the things they lost on the sea for the life they got to keep. I doubt they ever forgot what they got that day. Salvation from God. What a great picture. What a great picture. A historical illustration for us right here of what Jesus meant when he said in Mark chapter 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Look to the salvation that can cover us even when all else is wrecked. Find it in Christ. But even after surviving shipwreck, there is still one more stop for Paul before reaching Rome, which leads us to our third section. Snakebite. I wonder if I'll ever, ever, ever have another point in a sermon entitled Snakebite. Chapter 28, verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So everyone lands on an unknown island. At least to Paul and Luke, this was a foreign land. They didn't know where they were. And the people on this island knew nothing about God. But still, you see, they have a sense of justice, an inkling of the divine. And in their state of ignorance, God has graciously sent them his messenger to reveal himself to them. Christian, remember, you were ignorant and you are lost. And yet in love he found you. 
Paul's time on this island sounds a lot like how Jesus' time went when he traveled outside Jerusalem. Remember, he would perform miracles that would point to his power and people would flock to him and Jesus would teach them about life in himself. And this is how the gospel initially spread in those early days. Even through these apostles and acts, we've been seeing how the spirit comes and works signs and wonders through their ministry. And we've been seeing that once the gospel is laid hold of and believed, the church gets established. And what becomes the ongoing miracle is lives changed through the witness of God's people and the spirit working through the word and the gospel. So church, the takeaway from Malta is not... To go out and buy a poisonous snake in order to impress your non-Christian friends. I don't think it's for us to start a healing ministry either. Do I believe God can sometimes use the laying on of hands and prayer to cure people? I do. I don't know how to make sense of James 5 otherwise. But I only really see these types of things happening in Acts. Where the gospel has not yet gone. Where the church has not yet been established. And that pattern is so regular that it goes beyond coincidence. It becomes normative for our practice as a church. But still the power in Christ is unmistakably working in Paul as it is in all Jesus' followers. The evil serpent bit him and bit all of us. But Christ in us is greater than that snake. And the venom of sin is not fatal. The curse of death left us sick and dying. But the words of Christ have brought us eternal healing. Your enemy, Christian, received the fatal blow at the cross. And like Paul's viper, Satan is a creature who will be thrown into the fire. He is no more a threat to you than a venomless snake. We aren't told, but I imagine that when Paul got to Rome, he was eager to send others back to Malta to help establish a church. And today you can go, actually. I had a friend who lived on Malta one time, and there was a thriving Christian church there, even to this day. God is building his church, and he's faithful to do it. This episode on Malta motivates us to want to spread the gospel where it hasn't yet been proclaimed. There are still people in our world today who, like these on Malta, do not know who God is, though they may believe in lots of gods. They couldn't tell you the Ten Commandments, but they know in their hearts that there is good and evil, right and wrong. And by God's grace, they suspect that they are on the wrong side of that equation. They have what the natural world can teach them, that there is a maker and that they are creatures. But they need more than that to be saved. The work we endeavor to do, church, is to raise up and send out missions and missionaries to go to unreached peoples like this with the rest of what God has revealed in Christ so that they might hear and believe and live as his church. Just because we live in a country where there is a great deal of knowledge about the Bible or God, that doesn't mean that your neighbor or your coworker or your family member who you'll see at Christmas or your classmate knows anything about Jesus. 
to keep us silent, our enemy would have us believe that everyone we would talk to about Jesus has already heard about him, thought about him, rejected him, and so we shouldn't proclaim him. But that is just not true. If you will begin the conversation, you will find that there are many people who are living in a kind of darkness in which they only know death, in which the only thing they can see is what their eyes can see. The only version of justice is the weak ones that humans try to carry out. And we have the chance to go and tell them that there is death and resurrection. That there is more than what we see with our eyes, but there is a a God who orders all things seen and unseen. And who has shown justice and mercy that brings us salvation through Jesus. After some time on the island, it is finally time for Paul to head on to Rome. Where he will arrive safely in verse 14. That is the last part of this long journey. And our last section to look at this morning. Safety. Safety. Look at chapter 28, verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putioli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Safe at last. God always gets his people and his gospel exactly where he wants them. Despite seemingly impossible odds. As if all Jerusalem councils and Roman courts weren't obstacles enough, it would seem on this sea voyage that even all nature had come against Paul too. Whatever foe we face, you can be sure it answers the authority and direction of our creator and our savior Jesus. Yet again, yet again, the Bible records God saying beforehand what would happen. And yet again, despite unthinkable odds, every word God said came true. Yet another reason to trust God above all else. Mobs, courts, storms, shipwrecks, snake bites, all had been steered to accomplish God's plan. God's sovereign power still remains undefeated. None can challenge him. As we pass through trials like Paul, we rarely know how God is going to provide ahead of time like Paul did. He knew he was going to get to Rome. I, w- I kind of wonder sometimes if Paul was like, just, he just felt invincible in these storms and these trials. It does say he was afraid, so he was human. But man, if he knew what God was going to do, wouldn't you just be fearless? We don't always have that luxury. But did you notice that at every turn, God had prepared someone to care for Paul? There were friends on the boat in 27 verse 2. Julius, a Roman centurion, was an attentive host. The native host at Malta, the brothers in Rome in 2715, 
All these put there by God to care for his messenger. God loves people through the hospitality of his people. Hospitality is a way that Christians with Christ's love stand out in a hyper-individualized culture. If you aren't already, make it a habit in your schedule to host people in your home. Think ahead of a Sunday, maybe in the next couple months, where you could invite somebody to come over to your house for church. Or you bring a meal to their house. You don't have to put out a huge spread. Just open your home. Make some soup. You won't always see how this gift encourages others. But God will use your love in this way to love others. I'm so encouraged by how many of you are ministering regularly through your hospitality. And how God is using it to build up our church. Look at how the Roman believers encouraged Paul with their hospitality in chapter 28, verse 15. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Man, isn't that often what happens when we gather together on Sundays too? We come in weary and worn from the ride of the week. So many things have happened. Our month has been brutal. Our year has been the same. We have a hard time remembering what it is that we even have to be thankful for, although we know we're supposed to be thankful. We feel physically tired. We feel emotionally discouraged. We feel spiritually drained. It's as if we have spent the week walking alone against the wind. And then we gather. And it's like coming in out of the cold and sitting next to the warm fire of Christ. And feeling it in the presence that he makes among his people. And as we worship God together and we talk to him and we talk to each other and we recount all that we have in the gospel. Our weary hearts get strength for the next week. Our discouragement fades and fresh gratitude for Christ swells. And while when we came in, we weren't sure how we'd make it through another day, let alone a week. We leave Taking heart that with Christ we don't need to be afraid. Members of the church, whether you came here this morning feeling downcast or full of joy, your presence here is helping other hearts turn in thankfulness to God. The encouragement of your voice singing God's praises, that is bringing courage to your brothers and sisters. If you've been with us for these last several chapters in Acts, you know how Jesus has been telling Paul that he's going to be a witness for the resurrected Christ in Rome. And it has almost along the way felt like one man Paul against the world. But then Paul gets to Rome and look who's already there. Look who comes out to meet him. Brothers, Christians already living in Rome. Jesus is always building his kingdom ahead of us. It never is totally on our shoulders. Praise God that the growth of the gospel in Kansas City, let alone in the world, does not rest on us but on Christ. There will, there will be many people God will use besides us and our church to reach people. So that is why we want to partner with other churches locally, nationally, internationally. Because we can do more for Christ's kingdom together than we can separately. We want to generously give prayer and financial support to them 
and to workers who go abroad so that they can take the gospel where we can't. But none of those efforts are going to be what ushers in Jesus' kingdom. As if by some strategy we could hit every unreached people group on earth and then voila, Jesus comes back. Many times, if we're honest, we hardly feel our gospel efforts make much difference at all. When we go, we go in faith. And we feel our own great weakness. And we need to know his grace more every day. The battle for souls is not ours, but the Lord's. We do not find the people he does. And he sends us to them. Our strength is his strength. Our safety is his keeping. We rest on Christ. And in his name we go. And the fact that God has many people that he's bringing in to this kingdom. Ones that you and I will never meet. Who have passed on before us. And if he tarries will come after us. Doesn't that deepen your longing for heaven? To meet all those people and be with all the redeemed. Can, can you even imagine what it's going to be like to see the glorious faces there? All of us saved by King Jesus. I wonder how often in Rome Paul remembered what Jesus told him in Acts 18 verse 10. Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. How much those words must have helped Paul be thankful and courageous on the boat, on the island, and now in Rome. Perhaps they can help you too, weary Christian. Perhaps they can help you find reasons to give thanks, to be hopeful this week. God is working. So we can, thank, we can be thankful for what he has brought in our lives. God is strong to save. So we can be courageous as we venture into our weeks. We're going to close up in our study of this voyage. There's so many lessons. So many lessons here. We've learned some together this morning. I have not, I understand, given you some sort of summarizing statement that puts it all together. But even so, I want to finish by asking one, one question. Out of all the ways that God could have gotten Paul to Rome, why did God plan the journey to go this way? By now in Acts, we know God is in control of this narrative. By now in the whole testimony of the Bible, we understand that God is the creator, the maker of oceans and winds and waves and people. If Jesus is taking Paul to Rome, why the courts? Why the soldiers? Why the storms? Why the shipwrecks? Why the snakes? Wouldn't this have all been easier without the trials? How do we make sense of that? I'm not sure we can always make sense of that. We often wonder what trials and difficulties accomplish on our journey. To where Jesus is leading us home. We rarely expect to meet trials on the way. Even if we've gone through them before. But without the trial. Or the soldiers. Or the sailors. Without the wind and the storms. None of the people in this story. Would have seen the salvation of the Lord. Those island people. 
would not have met the man of God or heard his message. Without the court appointment in Rome, there would not have been a global platform for the spread of Jesus' name. In our trials, God is intending to reveal himself to us. Look for him there, and you will find him. And in the difficulties we meet in following him, Jesus is burning away other trusts and purifying our singular faith in him. When Paul finally got to Rome, understand he wasn't safe in a human sense. This imperial trial will eventually end in his death. But he had seen enough to know that God saves. And if that was ahead for Paul, then Paul could go on living in a peaceful paradox of a trial-filled discipleship to Jesus. God may have our path run through storms and shipwreck. I doubt snake bites. But we will always be safe in the salvation of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take your word and plant it in our hearts. That we would receive the life that is given to us in it. That you would enable us by faith to grasp hold of it. By your grace and strength and mercy to live according to it. And that Christ will be magnified in all of this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.